You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. What is up? You are listening to the Straight to Video Podcast and I want to let you know that I am so happy you're here and on board for another episode. Today I'm excited to bring you a great chat with Peter Argyropoulos, singer of the band Sons of Silver, whose bassist Adam Curry I spoke to way back at the end of 2020 when the band were just releasing their Doomsday Noises EP. And now they're all set to release a brand new collection of songs on another EP called Ordinary Sex Appeal. We learn how it all came together and how Sons of Silver are yet another music act that I've had on the podcast to work with producer and mixer John Fields. Previously, I've spoken to Matt and James from Busted and also the Dolly Rots who have all been in the studio with John and given him nothing but great praise. So as expected, we get the same from Peter. I think I need to track John down and get him on the show at some point too as that would be really cool. Also, during my chat, we discussed Peter's childhood on Venice Beach in California, the band and music his parents toured with, his bandmate Adam Curry's recent trip to record at the world-famous Abbey Road studio here in the UK, and much, much more. Peter was super friendly, really easygoing, and it's made for a treat of a conversation. As always, though, i got to give a shout-out to my friends Dead Skull Coffee for their continued support of this podcast. Not only do they serve up the finest rock and roll ground or full bean coffee with special editions for bands like Thunder and Inglorious, they also now have a Call of the Wild Festival third stage coffee and even a Rocker Mocker chocolate coffee fudge bar available. So much great stuff on their website and you can get 15% off any order by simply entering the promo code STV on checkout over at deadskullcoffee.co.uk. All right, after my chat with Peter, please check out the new Sons of Silver EP, Ordinary Sex Appeal, which is out at the end of April. And all the info you need can be found at sonsofsilver.com or find them on social media as they're really ramping things up towards the release. But for now, I want you to enjoy my straight-to-video chat with singer and guitarist Peter Argyropoulos. All right. <laughs> you know what it is? Sorry about that. That's all right. I set it up earlier and I got it all running and then I let my computer go to sleep. And so I think, you know, it just didn't want to wake up. <laughs> it was like me right now. <laughs> How you doing, PT? All right. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you ever so much for doing this. Oh, no. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for accommodating the schedule change. I had a bad sore throat last week. It's crazy. I've been fighting a cold for two weeks and normally I'm a 24 hour and done guy. But my wife, Breen and I, Breen, who's our keyboardist in our band, we have a 15 month old. So basically we don't sleep. So if you don't <laughs> sleep, you don't have a chance to heal. Yeah, exactly. So we've just been you know, it's like, okay, I'm feeling really bad today. You take them. Uh, all good. High grade problems. Kind of gave me a head start. I'd already started diving into some questions and had a rough draft. Right on. And it gave me time to sit on it for a while. So it's all good. It's all good. Right on. So where, where are you? Are you in London? No, I am. Well, the nearest big city to me is Nottingham, which I know you're familiar with. Yeah, I 
Yeah, I've been there a couple times. It's beautiful. That's beautiful country there. And maybe like just over 10 miles away from Nottingham, but that's the nearest big city. Nice. I love it. First up, congratulations on the new EP, Ordinary Sex Appeal. Thank you so much. Follow up to Doomsday Noises, which I actually spoke to Adam, your bass player, about back in November 2020. That's right. I No, I, I knew because I knew your show and, and I was like, I don't remember doing that interview. And that, you're right. It was Adam. Okay. Now I'm, I know I'm not losing my mind. Yeah. Where's the time going? Like, what are we? It's going about a year and a half away. It's nuts. Yep. It sure is. Much like the previous EP, the songs sound huge with you as a favorite of mine at the moment. How many tunes did you track? to decide on the final running order? Do you do like loads and loads of songs? Yes and no. We'll record and we'll get a bunch of songs, you know, halfway, three quarters of the way. Songs that we could finish, but we'll say, you know what, let's just focus on these. So I think we finished around eight for this and we had another dozen or so set aside, which we're actually, we've been working on over the past you know months now for the next CP. Actually, I think we'll do a full length LP, but yeah. So we chose from about eight, narrowed it down to five and we like to stick to five just because, you know, it just seems like at all levels from the audience to press to radio, five seems like what they want to digest. Anything more than that. And it's like, ah, you know. I was wondering that, I mean, will everything eventually be condensed into one full album or are just EPs the way to go? Just like drip feed people that regular new material because people haven't got time for the 12 tracks That's i know <laughs> i know i know you know I, I don't know i think i mean i'd really like to do an lp right now i actually i was putting together a list last night of some songs we need to finish and i'm going you know what why don't we set a goal for like 20 songs and then cut it down to 10 or 12 and, and even if we split that and do two eps fine but i'd like to try to do a full lp and not necessarily a concept thing but just have a, a, a longer theme to it and see what happens but you know, I say that and it's all like, you know, vaporware in the sense of like when the stuff is ready to come out, you put what's ready to come out. You've got to do a full album at some point, though, because you've got to do the big album gatefold with all your themed EP artwork you've been doing in the past because that would look amazing. Funny you mention that because we're always talking about that. You know, it's like, OK, so we'll probably combine these two EPs into to one album when we go on the road. Right. Instead of selling two EPs. But then we're like, well, that's too long because each side would be too long. The grooves are too narrow. So it's, it's not going to risk sound good. This is how silly this stuff gets. And then on top of that, you're like, so if we spread it out over three sides, two pieces of vinyl, then we have a whole third side left over. So maybe we use some of those B sides that weren't released. Do we do an acoustic version? I don't know. You know what? I, I'm kind of starting to leave that to the label folks and pull out of it. And, you know, I'm trying to actually, I, I can't, I'm kind of a control freak, but <laughs> doing my best, but yes, yes. It would be easier to say, look, 36 minutes, 18 minutes aside, you know, six, eight, 10 songs. That's what you get. Awesome. And uh, this time you handed the mixing reins over to John Fields. Yes. Because it's normally Brina who handles all that, your wife. Yeah. I've had a few people on this podcast who regular work with John. He's got oh, really? such a great resume. Yeah. We were really fortunate to work with John. And, you know, like you were mentioning, Brina normally does the mixing. But in this case, she couldn't because she was literally, you know, about to have our son. So she, you know, handed off to John. It was tough to let go because she tracked everything. She co-produced it. I mean, she is the only person who was there for every single note that was recorded. Even I would step out of the room at times. She tracked everything, but she laid it out really well for John. And as far as, you know, just even basic pannings, levels and, and some EQing and stuff. And he was really pleasant to work with in the sense that a lot of guys would be like, no, I don't, I don't want to hear your ideas. I'm just going to do my thing, especially guys of his level. But he took it and there was a bit of back and forth to get the communication going properly because everyone speaks slightly differently, kind of like you and I. 
And uh, describing sounds and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And so once they got it going, it was great. But I will say the first song he mixed and it was felt it would be the most challenging. So we, we thought, let's start him off with a tough one was with you. And he did a perfect job on it first. I mean, literally, it could not be better as far as we're concerned. And at that point, we're like, ah, oh, if you can get this, the rest, they're just fast punk songs. I mean, you know. How did he get on your radar? Is it somebody was recommended to you? Actually, through our management and label. And it's funny because they sent his resume. And I was like, I know John's work. You know, I know some people who have worked with him. In fact, our drummer, Dave Cruzen, had spent some time with John, not working with him, or maybe a little bit, but I don't think they're working, but they're working in the same studio complex. And so they knew each other, you know, are familiar with each other. So, when he heard it, he's like, oh, John's great, blah, blah, blah. But you know, at the same time, passing it off, I don't care who it is. It's tough to let go. And once you know how to, to do it yourself. So we were a little like, oh, we'll see. But you know, got on the phone with John, seems like a great guy. He is a great guy. And, and there's this, you know, sort of a natural speaking chemistry. It's like we could go down to the bar and have a beer together and, and we'd be cool. So at that point, it was a matter of just doing it. And he did it. And you know, the way it works, I don't know if you're familiar with, but you send them the tracks, right? And everything is done these days in, in computers and the likes of that. And he, you know, mixes in Pro Tools so he can close a session, come back a day later and have full recall. Everything's exactly as he left it and make tweaks. So he'd send us a first draft of mix. We'd make some tweaks, so on and so forth. But one of the funny things that came out of it was, is he really loves the low end. He loves low end, you know, and and we like low end. We like it a lot, but for our stuff, it tends to, I don't want to say get in the way. I guess you could say get in the way and not necessarily in a physical sense, but also in an emotional sense. So he'd send us back some mixes sometimes that sounded really good, but they were like, thumping man adam's like this is the best we've ever sounded oh it was so true <laughs> but i knew i knew like when one of them we were a little off course when adam calls me you know because what i do is I, I send the mixes i push them on soundcloud so everyone can listen right we have a little private soundcloud and so adam calls me not even 10 minutes later he goes dude he goes it's great he goes but you know i mean you know how much i love bass but <laughs> You know, so it's funny. So I told John, he goes, but I love that arm. I'm like, I know, but we got to get the guitar. So once we got that scored away and he was great with it because it was more of a taste thing and he really pushed us there. We we still left like, you know, 80% of what he did because it, it, it opened up a new thing to us. Just It's just a new way of thinking about it. And that's one of the nice things when you get someone who you are on the same page with, who is part of your team, could be part of your team. They push you. And we like to do that with each other. We're, we're not one of those bands that's, you know, run from one person or one source or one mantra, one way of thinking. We, we like to explore and, and we have no problem sharing ideas and telling each other, hey, I like that, but I don't like that. Well, if you try this, if you try this, I'll try that. So John really worked well with that. And we're, you know, I know we're going on and on about this, but we're really thankful that we've got him because he contributed so much. Sweet. Yeah. Even though Sons of Silver, a relatively new band, but you've all been playing together for some time prior to this project, you all performed as PRG. I saw you playing with my friend Dave Giles over yes. in the UK, yeah. in Nottingham, Rough Trade. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Very cool that Adam got to come over here and record in Abbey Road with Dave too. So making you all very jealous, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, he had a great time. Well, it was, it's funny. I guess we were all, we were all, I don't want to say jealous because we were living through him vicariously. And our guitarist, Kevin, was supposed to go as well. But Kevin had to back out the last second because he was concerned about COVID breaking out again. And he hadn't had COVID and, and all the lockdowns. And he was like, man, vaxxed or not vaxxed, if I get it, I'm going to be locked in a hotel room for a week or so. I won't really get to work. And it was just looking like it could easily be a mess. And ironically, he did get COVID a couple of days later. He was fine. 
he would have had it when he was there. So, but nonetheless, without him, he was sending us pictures every few days and videos and stuff. You know, he and I spoke on the phone two or three times and he was telling stories and he's like, yeah, we pulled out the same three pianos that they used for the end of a day in life. And, you know, and everyone said one, two, three, go. And we hit it. And he played something for me that actually he just recorded them doing that on his phone, right? He set his phone down and they all hit, you know, the piano simultaneously on that big C chord there. I think it's C, right? And honest to God, it sounded identical to the end. And he was explained to me, he's like, no, he goes, everyone there says the same thing. I talked to other people who've done this, you know, or in the studio, put the pianos in the same spot. They're not doing anything other than just throwing up a couple mics, but it's the resonance of the room and the way the sound just sort of scoops up. And it has this distinct sort of drum. And it was Magic. right there on his phone 50 years later. It was like, wow, this is amazing. I love that. I love that. Peter, if it's cool with you, I'd love to dive back into your journey. No, no, no. Not cool. <laughs> you were born and raised in California, grew up in the Venice Beach area. Yeah, still here. How did you spend your childhood back then? Did you embrace the whole surf and skateboard culture at all? Because that's what me being from the UK kind of associates with that area. Yes, I was on blades and skates. I actually was terrible with uh, a skateboard and I tried surfing. You know, I, well, I limitedly tried skateboarding, but I was so bad, I, I stayed away from it. And I tried surfing because one of my brothers actually was on the uh, pro junior tour. He was ranked uh, in the top 10, top 15 in the world for a couple of years. So he would try to teach me surfing. And he did. I, I'm great with like small waves and warm water. But here in LA, where it's a little rougher, where the water's cold, not my cup of tea. Right. <laughs> so anyway, so, but yeah, I used to skate the boardwalk all the time. You know, there were a lot of uh, setups out there with trash cans, jumping trash cans, skating around cones. There was the old Venice pavilion. There was this rundown sort of, dare I say, picnic-y kind of area with, you know, cement picnic tables. And we do crazy stuff like jump around from table to table and skate between and playing tag and stuff. So yeah, I did all that. And I wasn't part of the skating crowd by any means, but I was familiar with it. And, and, you know, I knew folks and I hung out there and, you know, cause that was really before my time when it was at its peak, but it's still, it still carries on a bit to this day. And it's a cool crowd and being in Venice, it's funny because my wife and I want to move now that we have a son. It's it's still gritty. It's a really cool town. It's very colorful. It's very eclectic as far as backgrounds of people. And for the most part, the people here are pretty chill and pretty open-minded. So even during COVID, you know, when people were getting, a lot of folks were getting bent out of shape. A lot of the, especially the OGs here were, you know, just being like, hey, chill out, man. Lighten up. I get your opinion. Everyone has an opinion here. Keep it to yourself. So you're pretty close to where you grew up then? I live on the same street. Get it. My parents first lived to. We moved around a few times. So we're actually not on where I'm about a half mile from where I actually, the block I grew up on. But yeah, I live on this exact same street. I love that. I didn't go far. And every time I say I want to move now, and every time we try to go or I try to go, something yanks me back, you know? Yeah. You can move away and you'll end up retiring on Venice Beach or something like that. <laughs> probably, probably. Your dad moved to the US from Greece as a teenager, I believe. Do you know what brought him over there originally? Yeah, well, my grandfather moved the family. My dad's one of, uh, what's it, five kids. He has two other brothers and uh, two sisters. He was born in uh, the mountains of Greece, of uh, Southern Greece, uh, actually about 15, 20 kilometers southeast of Olympia. He was born basically a hillbilly. It was a struggle. You know, we're talking, you know, like right around 1960 here. It was a struggle in the post-war era still. And my grandfather just didn't see much. He saw a difficult life ahead. And he came to the States and worked for four years and, and saved up enough money to bring the whole family over. And uh, it was really sort of that prototypical, stereotypical American 
story you know, where the immigrants come over, the, the father comes over for a few years, doesn't see the family at all in the meantime, saves up enough money, brings them over. And he did. He brought the whole family over to Chicago, which is where a lot of Greeks were settling at that time. And eventually my dad made his way out to Los Angeles, uh, met my mom. My grandfather came to bring my dad back to Chicago, got out to LA and called up my grandmother and said, bring the rest of the family because the weather here is great. I Literally, you know, except for my dad's oldest sister who had, you know, started a family very young. So she stayed behind. And uh, so I do have a familiarity with Chicago visiting her aside from touring. But anyways, yeah, so they all came out here and that's how it got going for them. Have you traced much of your family history back to Greece? Did you used to take holidays there? Uh, Yeah, I still do. Yeah, I, I go, I've pretty much go every summer for my entire life really fortunate. You know, the reality is it's a cheap trip. It was a plane ticket and then go stay with family, either stay in the village where my dad was from, stay with, you know, friends or family in Athens or go to an island. Like my family now has a a home on one of the islands. They did it when it was still insanely inexpensive time when they bought a home, the price of a home there, a nice home was like the cost of a bucket in Los Angeles. It was so much less expensive there. So yeah. So I mean, honestly, that's where we take most of our trips. Yeah. Excited to take your son over there. Oh yeah. Actually we did this past summer. We were supposed to go for like two or three weeks and come back and tour. Got over there. And I said, how many tour dates do we have? This was in the fall and COVID was starting to kick up again. And I said, you know what? How about we wait till next year to tour? And I love touring. You got to say, I love playing shows. I do this for that, right? And we ended up staying there for about five and a half weeks. Very, very fortunate. Didn't get any work done. Came back, needed some money, but it was all good. (laughs) With a few extra pounds around the belly as well. Every time, yeah. every time. But I will say, my wife will say to my credit, she's like, you're really good at taking off. I'll gain like, you know, six, eight pounds and boom, within a week or so, they're gone. Just basically starve myself. Good work, good work. And whilst over here in the US, your parents played in a band, I believe, and toured the West Coast. Your mom, a singer and dad, a bass player. Yeah, yeah, they did. Do you know when that was or how serious they got with it all? It was the late 60s and the early 70s. How serious did they get? I don't know exactly. It's kind of a moving target tale. I know that they were playing some you know, notable venues, like they were playing regularly at the Troubadour and uh, they were doing some small festivals up and down the West Coast. Did they get close to making it? I don't think so. I know they'd cut some tracks for some labels, but I think what really happened is their lead man, my mom was the lead singer, but the, like, the guy who ran the band, who was actually was my dad's best friend who introduced my dad to music. He took a few too many drugs. Late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, basically he went on a bender. This is the story if you want to hear it, the 30 second story. He used to like to pick up girls. He went on a bender one weekend and dropped a bunch of acid. She took him to some cult meeting. Didn't hear from him, showed up about a week and a half later, actually at a rehearsal. And uh, he had a Bible in his hand and, and he was preaching who knows what, some, some, I don't even know what you call it. I got to be careful what I say here. But that was kind of the beginning of the downfall of the band. And they all went their ways after that. And my dad tried to do stuff, but it didn't work. But the one thing that was funny on this note, the man unfortunately died. And I went to his funeral with my dad and he had become a pastor at a church as well as their principal songwriter. And he had about two or 300 songs that he had written. And he had a pretty large congregation. And there were people there who were singing in the church. They were singing these songs for hours. It was really remarkable. It was touching because, you know, folks like me, me come at it. Maybe a lot of folks come at it from a perspective like, oh, that guy went off the deep end. I mean, he took the religion thing too far, became like a cult, but he found his place. 
And he really found a community that worked for him. And one has to give him credit for that because, you know, he was probably not the best of person before that, from what I understand. Turned everything around and like left, I guess, almost a legacy in a way. Exactly. His influence on those yeah, people. Yeah, that's the way I understand it. Yeah. I guess you perhaps think it was your mom and dad's influence that led you to be a musician, but you didn't join your first band until college in a cover band to make some money. Yes. Yes. You've done your homework. Where did I say that? I don't remember seeing that anywhere. <laughs> no, yeah, my parents are obviously, you know, there were, music was around from the get-go. My mom was playing, you know, when she was still pregnant with me. Had it not really appealed to you that much or was you kind of subconsciously rebelling against them? No, I always played music. Even as I was a little kid, you know, I was playing music because they never stopped playing. They were always performing, whether or not they were trying to, you know, be quote unquote pros to make it, so to speak. You know, their band days were before me, but they still continued to play both parents, you know. I learned to read and write music second or third grade. So I was writing songs, you know, on recorder and then on like violin and clarinet. You know, those are the band instruments or the ensemble instruments that the kids were playing. I was doing that eight, nine, 10 years old. And I was, to my credit, I was excelling. I was, you know, the top kid in the class or the top two. And I never picked up my guitar. My, my dad bought me like two or three guitars over the years and would, you know, every Christmas or birthday, every few years would buy me one. And I'd never learn it. And I think he kind of gave up. And then I was uh, around 17, finishing up high school. I was bored. I had a part-time job, but, you know, I knew where I was going to college. So I went grabbed one of his guitars, went to a local guitar shop called McCabe's and took a couple lessons. And that was that. And one day my dad comes home from work. He sees me sitting on the couch playing guitar. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm learning guitars and it's great. He's like, after all these years, he walks out of the room, comes back like a minute later, throws a book down on the coffee table in front of me. And it's a Beatles songbook. And he goes, learn a few of these. He said, that's a good place to start. Well, I proceeded to learn all of them. And that that was sort of my education as far as rock and roll and likes that. And then got to college. It was work in the library or join a band. That's pretty simple. So I joined a band, could barely play, and uh, but I was off and running. At being a performer, not really appealed to you up till that point. You know, I didn't really think about it. I was really into sports, still am. You know, I was big into football, actually. I'm only like 5'10", 5'11", in height, you know, which is average, but football players players tend to be a little bit bigger, or at least the position I was playing, which was a quarterback for the most part. But I was actually pretty tall. I, I stopped growing at around 14, 15. So I had a, a period of where I was pretty tall. So I took it seriously. And then I played some baseball. So it wasn't that I wasn't into music. It was just sort of distracted down a different path. But then literally, I'll, I'll never forget, once I started picking up the guitar, all my friends came out of the woodwork, best friends who were all, you know, let's say athletes as well. And they were like, ah, oh, this is what you were meant to do. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, oh, this is it, man. You, you way you sing you just pick up the guitar and you mean it just just flows out of you i'm like really even my best friend to this day who's some big corporate guy you know he's been extraordinarily successful we text each other every day but he's always says where's it send me a new song so means he's like he goes it was just there and, and it's funny because i talked to his son who wants to be a professional musician and i think he will we trade ideas you know pretty regularly so i don't know it was there and i they just saw it you didn't <laughs> yeah, I just, I had never tapped it, yeah. you know? Wow, that's crazy. While she was out in California, was there any particular bands really blowing up when you were a teenager in high school who you go and see? Was there like a big music movement? You know what? I wasn't really involved in that stuff. I listened on the radio like everyone else. So I'd listen to, you know, everything in the 80s and 90s that was going on. Old stuff too, because my parents were musicians. And so, uh, you know, like my dad took me to a Bruce Springsteen concert when I was, you know, a little kid. You name it, I could go on and on the shows I saw. 
but their influences though, because they were such, you know, audio or music, what do you call them? Audiophiles? I don't know, audiophiles. Audiophiles, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's like, a, they were just so into music, including my stepdad, because my parents split up when I was very young, amicably, but music was around nonstop. So it wasn't just the education of what was going on amongst my peers or amongst the time. It was also with my parents. And they were reaching back even before then. So there's a lot of like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and Nat King Cole and obviously the Beatles, Stones, Zeppelin, things like that, you know, Deep Purple. Quite a contrast to what was playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go then probably. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was all around. But for me, I mean, I couldn't even pick a time when I said, oh, this is my time. This is when I really started listening to stuff. It was just always there. And I just went deeper and deeper into it over time as I got more emotionally invested in music. In the past, you've recorded some of your dad's songs as well right yes yeah did it influence him to write some new stuff i believe so i mean i i don't want to say i co-wrote stuff with him i mean i I edited it you know and i produced it we did a couple albums and i should say we did one and a half we did one full length album together and then the second one he came to me a few years ago and he wanted to to do another one but I, i i felt so bad i just did not have the time i was touring so much so one of his good friends who's one of the most famous Greek producers of all times, a guy named Yanni Spathas, uh, who sadly died a couple of years ago. Fortunately, I was, my dad and I were in Greece and we were able to go to his funeral, which was beautiful, as beautiful as a funeral can be. But nonetheless, so he produced my dad. He took him to one of the tops, actually the top studio in Greece. And my dad's, you know, he's an okay singer. He was a really good songwriter. And he has kind of a Leonard Cohen vibe to him, a bit Leonard Cohen, Cat Stevens thing. So it's it's actually kind of fun because you can have a lot of, you can explore what the sounds a lot. He's pretty open to that and letting you run with it because he recognizes his limitations. So anyway, so I, I got off track, but yeah, so I did the first album and then the second album, I, you know, sort of co-produced it from a distance, sang on it, played some keyboards, some guitars, made some comments, be like, no, 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 don't send my dad down that path. <laughs> <laughs> How was it for your dad, like, recording after so much time? Was it cool for him? He was in La La Land. He was like, wow, I really wish I had kept this going. I should, after the band broke up, I, I shouldn't have just sat around and banged my guitar and played a show here and there. I should have just really taken it seriously, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, you should have, you still can. And, you know, he, he has in and out to a degree, but yeah, that he was really uh, in like a kid in a candy shop. And I remember, cause I was like, you know, if we're going to do this, let's go to a really good studio. So we went to a really good studio, at least for tracking basis to step back. What we did was, you know, he and I went through about 20 songs cleaned them up a bit. And then I brought in a band. I brought in like Adam, for instance, and, and one of our good friends, uh, Scotty Cormos to play drums, a guy named Kerry Park, who does a lot of session work, especially in Nashville to play guitar along with me. Actually, it's funny because Kerry ended up playing a lot of mandolin. You know, we, we went and rehearsed this stuff for weeks, actually for months. We'd go in a couple of days a week for probably like two or three months, maybe longer, just slowly getting it right. And then we went to a studio, a big studio in LA for about a week. And I remember he was looking around. He's like, this is amazing. And he's hard to impress. I mean, he's seen a lot. This is a mountain kid from Greece who came over to the United States and didn't know a word of the language, lands in Manhattan, then makes his way to Chicago, then to LA. And in the meantime, he had his whole life in between in traveling the world. And so he's seen it all, but he was, you know, wow, that kind of look on his face. I felt really, I was thankful we had that to go do together. I love that. So I believe you went to college on the East Coast where you yes. started performing music and stuff like that and would eventually return back to LA in 
Was it 98? 98, yeah. 98, 99 Is this when you met Adam and the band last December yes. came together? Yeah, actually, Adam and I met uh, at the very end of uh, 97. Actually, yeah, it was, it was the end of 97, I'm trying to think. So I'd just gotten back, and I can't remember if it was my last year or not, but anyway, we just gotten back, and I recorded a, a bunch of songs, just, you know, just rough stuff, you know, decent demos. Now, I wouldn't even call them good demos, but decent demos and sent them off to a few folks. And I got called by a couple of publishing companies. One of them called me up and said, Hey, we want you to go work with this guy named Peter Love. Here's his phone number. He's the protege and, and right-hand man to a producer named Keith Olson. I had no idea who anyone was. Again, I don't, I, I'm like not a name guy, whatever. So all I had on this piece of paper was Peter Love, Keith Olson, and the phone number. So I called up the studio and and I, you know, said, Hey, I'm looking, I don't know if I'm looking for Keith or for Peter. My name's Peter, blah, blah, blah. And XYZ publishing company sent me over here to work with you guys. They want me to cut, you know, two to four songs. And they said, you know, they're going to take care of it. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, Peter, you want to, you want to come over and see Peter? I'm like, okay. Schedule a meeting, give me an address. And it's at a studio complex called Sound City, which you're probably familiar with from the Dave Grohl movie, right? And I know none of this stuff, zero. Which is probably good sometimes. Well, it was good in the end. <laughs> the funny part was I take along my, my right-hand man guitarist I was playing with a friend named Jason Kaler. And we go down there and Jason's still in college. We're babies, right? We go to the studio. It's in the Sound City complex. And again, I'm like, okay, complex studios, whatever. We're sitting in the control room in front of the mixing console and Peter Love, who is this engineer and producer who again works for Keith Olsen. And, and I still don't know who Keith Olsen is. And I'll keep that till nearing the end of the story for your listeners here. But uh, we sit down, listen to some of the tracks and Peter's just doing his thing, listening, listening. Like, I like this song. Okay, we can do this one. This is really good. And he's like, maybe we'll change this up here. He goes, I like that. Yeah, okay, that's good. And mind you, Peter had produced several bands at the time in Los Angeles that had gone on to do pretty well, or at least as far as getting record deals, getting big promotion behind them and the likes of that. So that's why they sent me to work with them because he was uh, really well-respected as an up-and-coming guy. So we're going through this. And Peter, in the meantime, kept popping off. He said, Keith this, Keith Olsen that, Keith this, Keith Olsen that. I'm like, okay, blah, 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 blah. So we're like laying out a schedule at the end here, how we can do things. And he's like, I have uh, you know a drummer and a bassist for you. And that would ended up being Adam on bass and my friend Scotty on drums. So he she goes, you guys got any questions? And I go, uh, I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. He goes, who's Keith? Who's Keith Olson? And I'll never forget. I do that. And I mind you, we're sitting in sort of like triangular to each other. So I look sort of past Peter and I'll see Jason. His eyes are like this, <laughs> like. And I remember, remember Peter Love goes. He goes, well, Keith Olson only happens to be the third most successful producer of all time behind. Uh, behind George Martin and Quincy Jones. Have you ever heard of them? Have you ever heard of bands like Fleetwood Mac, ACDC, Whitesnake? I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, oh, he recorded those? Y yeah, right here, right here. Uh, 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 Who is this kid? He's well cocky. He's not phased by anything. <laughs> basically, they were like, I was the, I was waiting for the get out of here at that at this point. But no, he was he was cool. But he and I became great friends and we still are. Yeah. So that's how I met Adam. So I got, you know, I went down some gig Adam was playing at and Adam and I met and we rehearsed a couple of times, you know, we went and recorded with Peter and we all hit it off so much. We're like, you know what, let's take a few months, just play together. I'll write some new songs. And that's what we did. We got a residency here in, in LA for about six months playing like two, three nights a week. How was it returned to LA as a musician? Was you quite a different person to the one that left? Yeah, I was better. <laughs> 
<laughs> I could play guitar and I wasn't getting any stage fright. I never was a stage fright guy much anyway, but it was, you know, you kind of get used to the rigors of it, the physical rigors, the emotional rigors. And even when you're playing club dates just for, you know, 50, 150, 250 people, that's really good stuff to do because if anything, you find that one of the hard parts to get around is to stay focused, especially when you're the lead singer. You have people pulling you in so many directions. It's hard sometimes to go on the stage and instantly be in it and instantly be present with the audience because you know, it's like any anything else in life. You may be, you know, as you step into a new situation, like you walk into someone's house after you just got off the phone call in your car, you may walk in their house and you're saying, hey, 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 but that phone call is still sort of buzzing in your head. Well, you got to hit that stage and you got to be going. It's got to be right there because otherwise people sense it and, you know, and it's not as much fun for you either. And like hitting a club where the lights go down and there's maybe 10 people there, there's not going to be much of a cheer to get into the moment. And mind you, we had a lot of those. <laughs> those are always unavoidable. When, when the bartender is, you know, 10% of your crowd, but that's all good. It's, you know, that's what puts hair on yeah, your chest. 100%. And after last December, you would head out as a solo artist under the name PRG and that band would later evolve into Sons of Silver with the much rockier vibe we have today. Was that growth natural through playing live or was you beginning to listen back to heavier bands that influenced that songwriting, do you think? No, it was very natural. I mean, when I started out playing, I was writing on my own and it was very singer-songwriter, very folksy. And not because that was necessarily what I was drawn to. It was just the way I was building the songs and everyone liked them as they were. So there was never really a call to let's change, let's make this more rocky. I mean, there was a brief period with a major label for a few years we were on that was trying to do that. It was an absolute disaster. I moved on from that. I learned a lot, did a lot of producing for other artists after that. But so I, it was just, you know, it's like, man, Peter, you sound really good. Just playing that guitar sounds really full. Your voice is full. Is there something there? So that's how, what we were trying to capture. And that's what happened with Peter RG when we first started. But as that went on, I mean, frankly, I like rock, you know, or I like, I like a lot of punk, punk rock. He says with the clash poster behind you. <laughs> yes, I forgot. Oh, I, you know, this is a good setup because there's, there's a window right over here. It's a lot of natural light. But yeah, I forgot that. Yes. So, and I mean, it's one of my favorite couple bands. So, you know, they like them, Radiohead. Obviously, everyone likes the Beatles. And even if they don't like the Beatles, they have to admit they like the Beatles because you get blackballed in this industry. But I do genuinely like them. So that's the stuff I really like to listen to. So what happened with Pete RG, we were just out playing a lot of shows. You're sound checking, you're rehearsing. And when it comes to the music, I'm not a control freak. I like to let everyone do their thing and, we, and be the one who sort of pulls it all together. So once we got comfortable with each other, because as Pete RG, we were playing like 60, 80 shows a year around the US and Europe as well. You know, you develop a lot of natural chemistry, both on and off stage. And that really fosters being comfortable with each other, comfortable to say anything, try things. So everyone just started contributing. And the next thing we know, we're just writing songs together and they're, they're way more rocking. And it was like, one, do we like this? And it was Absolutely. It was worked better on stage. And two, is this even to even just change our name and have a band name? And then that's what it came to. And and so it was a very, I don't know if I answered your question or if there was even a question, but it was very evolutionary how we got there. And, and it's very natural because for me, that's where I really like to be anyway. So I didn't plan to, but I'm really happy about that. It's great, man. I'm excited to see it hopefully come back to the UK at some point. Absolutely. Is there anyone who you'd like to go out on the road with in the future? Look, there are a few right now who are on the table. I'm going to keep them to myself. You know, 
know? So yes, there are. And really the main thing is just to get on a good bill with, you know, artists, not that we necessarily sound like, but that we just fit, we'd fit for their audience. It's almost like people are like, well, what does your music sound like? I'll say, I don't know who we sound like, but I know if you, for instance, if you like Kings of Leon, you probably like us. I know if you, you like, you know, some clash, you probably will like us. I mean, people actually have mentioned Rage Against the Machine. That one's pushing that. We've had a lot of people mention that, but I guess there are a number of acts out there. I want to kind of keep in myself because I know a couple are looking at us, but just being on bills that we would uh, do well with their audience. And, and also that we hear are good people and cool to hang out with. Cause that's when you're out with, even with other bands, you, you get pretty intimate. I mean, you've heard the stories recently, I'm sure with like the Foo Fighters and the Chili Peppers, you know, with the passing of Taylor Hawkins and how close they were. And that shows you what can happen when you go out with bands. It's really, you really bond, you know? It's going to be exciting when you can finally get out of there. Oh, chomping at the bit. <laughs> Unless an extended holiday in Greece comes up again or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? I don't think the rest of the band will buy it this time. No. In the middle of a COVID outbreak when everyone's head is still, you know, spun around way too many times, I think I get a free pass. But yes, from now on, I'll be like, dude, come on home. We're coming to get you. Exactly. <laughs> Dragging you exactly. back. <laughs> Peter, thank you ever so much for chatting with us. Oh, no. Thank you so much, Rob. It's all good. You enjoy the rest of your day. Congratulations on the EP and hopefully see you in the UK next time you make it over. Thank you so much, Rob. Look forward to checking it out and we'll talk soon. Many thanks to Peter Argyropoulos for being so gracious and taking time to chat with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. I really enjoyed connecting and I genuinely look forward to seeing the band perform their songs live if they make it over to the UK. For all the up-to-date info on the band and their new EP, Ordinary Sex Appeal, then hit up sonsofsilver.com. And if you want to deep dive into all early episodes of this show, then you can find them at stvpod.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. But please do me a favour to make sure to like, follow or subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. That is all for today's podcast. Thanks so much for the support and be sure to check back every Tuesday and Friday for a new show as we steam towards episode 200 with lots of surprises in store. But for now, please take care and let's chat again soon.